0: if you could please open your Bibles to Joel chapter one. Joel chapter one. Uh, Those of you who have been following through as I've been preaching through the Minor Prophets will be happy to recognize I have finished Hosea. (laughs) Joel is a little bit less risque than uh, Hosea. There are still some really important messages, but uh, I'm not gonna have to say some of the words that I had to explain uh, last time. Uh, Joel chapter one. And just to be serious about it, I would be, I would like you to open your Bibles. I really would. Uh, That's not just something I say at the beginning of sermons. It's because if you don't open your Bible, you're just taking my word for it. You're not, you're not going to see what God is trying to say to us, trying to teach us to believe. And so it's important that we open the word of God. We look in it. And so you don't trust me because I'm like the fourth best dressed person in this congregation. I was the first, but then a couple of teenagers showed up with suits. (laughs) Um, Anyway, that said, we're in Joel chapter one and I'll start reading. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, hear this you elders. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell it to your children. Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because the sweet wine, which is for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns. Because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers. For the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of men. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast Call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes, is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Not the most uplifting text you could possibly read, Uh, I'm going to say this is very rarely put on coffee mugs. You don't have to go buy a coffee mug and try to put this on it, but this is not something that people generally embroider and put on their wall. Joel chapter one is not a happy text, it just isn't. We don't know the dating of Joel. We don't know when Joel was written, and I think God, in his divine sovereignty, made it so that the word of God would not give us some idea as to that, because I think what God teaches us through Joel, and I'm only going to be able to deal with a few of the things that are in Joel chapter 1, but what God does teach us through Joel chapter 1 is things that I think we need to know timelessly. It's part of developing our character, being the people that God calls us to be. And before I start this sermon, I have to apologize because this is probably the I am probably the worst person to give the message that God has given us through uh, through Joel chapter one. My coworkers alternate between calling me Sheldon Cooper and Dr. Spock because I have next to no emotions usually when I'm talking day to day. I I have them. I just don't show them usually. And that's important because I think that the main point that we have today, the main point you see in Joel chapter 1, and indeed through many of the minor prophets, but especially here, is how to mourn properly. How to feel properly. How to be honest with the situations and the world that you really are in. To not cloak the ways you feel, the doubts you have, the questions you have, the feelings you have before God. Because God is in control. I'll get to that. In Joel, you can see real honest-to-goodness suffering. The fact is, the people around Joel's time are facing a real crisis. Uh, It talks about the locusts, and he goes through like four levels of how the locusts have eaten everything. And we who live in a highly integrated 21st century world where if food kind of runs out here, we just bring it in from other parts of the world. That wasn't true in ancient Israel. They didn't have that option. And so when the food ceased to be available, when the locusts eat everything, there's nothing for the humans left to eat. And as it says here, the cattle also don't have food, so they grow weary and die. There's real suffering here. There, there are real problems being faced. And I, I have to say, I, 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 that's important because And this is, uh, it's safe here, right? You guys are not gonna uh, judge me for this? Okay, it really doesn't matter. I have a confession. I really suck at giving comfort. I really do. And the reason is pretty simple. Uh, as As I explained to you, I am not very good with expressing emotions. And because of that, they make me uncomfortable. And there are two ways that a person with theological training and some background and some understanding, you know, I've read my Bible a couple of times now. I've sat in classes with people who are really, really smart and have taught me all sorts of theological ideas. There's two ways I can deal with people who are suffering in front of me because of that kind of knowledge. I can use the things that God has trained me with and given me to give them real comfort, to mourn with those who mourn and to deal with the situations as they are, but more commonly, I use what I know to shut people up. I worry about the fact that they have real problems, that they are dealing with real suffering, and instead of actually dealing with the suffering they have, listening and dwelling with them in the levels that they are, God help me, Christ forgive me, I use it to make them stop saying it. People open up the truth of, of the situations they're in, how they're feeling desolated and poor and blind. And I use, I say, well, God has a plan in this. And that's true. And that may even be good comfort for people sometimes. But the way I'm meaning it is because God has a plan for this, you shouldn't mourn now. Don't feel what you're really feeling. Just pretend, understand God knows what's going on. And so you don't need to tell me any more about how you're suffering. I'm pretty sure I'm not alone, actually. I've run into too many people. Um, I, I have conversations with, uh, I'm, I've been a Christian long enough. I've been in, in this uh, evangelical sphere long enough to have had friends who have had real suffering, and because of the way they interpreted the church as having dealt with their suffering, they would no longer call themselves Christian. Because things that they really, really were being dealing with, pains they really, really felt, they were just put off to the side as if you shouldn't worry about them. I mean, I'm not a woman, so I don't know what it's like to have miscarried a child, but people do. And there's two ways you can answer that. You can say, oh, well, God has a plan and they're in a much better place. Please don't keep telling me about how hurtful this is, how painful this was for you. God had a plan. Or I can tell you that God has a plan and I will weep with you now. More commonly in the church, it's been the former its pain its suffering we don't we don't want to deal with that i've had too many friends of mine who've had doubts about the truth of the gospel and the validity of the scriptures and don't get me wrong i have really good answers for you i can help you there i've i've had those doubts myself i have worked hard at them but so often it's easy for us in the church to see people who have real doubts who are struggling with it and their real struggles, and then just say to them, Well, you know, I'm sure they're, they're I'm sh- just have faith. Tamp down your real doubts. Don't deal with your real doubts and your real questions. Just pretend they're not there. Use faith, and, and now I don't have to deal with it anymore. And the reason I say that usually when I'm dealing with it is because. It hurts me. I I have that little twinge in my head for a second. Oh, well, maybe this question is right. Maybe finally this one person in front of me has come up with the one question that I haven't heard and I can't deal with, and the scriptures are not going to be okay, and God isn't going to fulfill this. Of course I'm wrong, the Bible is true. God really is there. But I'm scared, and so I shut down other people and pretend that the questions aren't there. And Joel chapter 1 tells us the fallacy of this. I have two points this morning. I'll just let you know them in front in case you're writing notes so you can uh, set this down. The first point, yes, your suffering has meaning. God really is working in the world, working in your life to work and to do his good pleasure. As we sang about just before I got up, all things work together for the good of those who love and serve the Lord and are called according to his purposes. That is literally true. Your suffering is not meaningless. Your life is not meaningless. And I don't mean what postmoderns and moderns mean now, that you can construct a meaning by this community together and we'll, ha- we'll create this meaning together and we'll say that this is real meaning. I mean, there is objective meaning, whether you want to believe it or not. There is meaning, that's point one. And of course, that's pretty easy. That's, that, that sounds like the way I, I, I told you that I used to shut people down sometimes. I tell them their suffering has meaning. But that's where point two comes in. Because your suffering has meaning. Because there is meaning. You are free to mourn and to doubt and to bring your sin before God in total safety. We as believers do not need to be afraid of the doubts of the evil one. We don't need to be afraid of the real pain and suffering in the world around us. Instead, we can run towards it because God is in control and he cares. Not merely for us, but also for the people that we, are, we come to. I'll try to walk you through this so you can get to it, but this is massive. Because if we get this, if we get this point, we don't have to be scared of the way the world works anymore. We don't have to be scared of dealing with the real issues in the world as they are. And our world is pretty seriously messed up. I mean, I have friends of mine who believe in progressivism, that things are getting better every way, every day. Uh, I don't quite believe them. Uh, I think they kind of cook the books to get to that. But I mean, you know, some, some things are getting better, some things are getting worse. But let's face it, the world is pretty crazy out there. I know that because I'm in the world and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty messed up myself sometimes. But first of all, First and most important, there is real meaning in the world. Your suffering really has meaning. Look at verses, verse 15 in Joel. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as, as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Now that's a statement of wrath. That's a statement that God is going to work through wrath in his day. But more than just dealing with the wrath, It means that God has a plan for this. He is working this through. The work through will happen. And in the midst of that, Joel will say, God can save. Look at verses 19 and 20. Because Joel, by the implication of what he's saying here, is saying that the Lord can save. He says, to you, O Lord, I call. Why does he call to the Lord? Because the Lord can help. The Lord can do something about this. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and the fire has devoured the pastures and the wilderness. And you see, even though he's speaking from the depths of his pain and suffering, even though he's speaking from the depths of the community's pain and suffering, He knows where to go with it because he knows who's in control, and that's God. Two basic conceptions that the Christian worldview has. There is a God. You're not him. But he's in control, he loves you. He loves better than you can even imagine loving. And so, when you suffer, when you have pain, when you have doubts and questions, when you have joy, there's no reason to hide it before anybody because he's in control. He loves you. He is working things together for your good. As long as you stand in him, as you seek him, he desires your good. And your suffering has meaning. It is not a surprise. There is no doubt you have in your head right now that God is not cognizant of and able to deal with. There is no suffering that stands outside of God's ability to redeem it. And in fact, he will glorify himself by redeeming it. It's one of the great things about God. That's what redemption, by the way, means, to take something that looks bad to us and then to turn it, even in a moment, to make it all make sense. And God is doing it. That's the story we live in. I remember preaching the sermon a while ago. I quoted a, a part from, uh, from I, I can't, Captain Barbosa of the uh, Black Pearl I told you that, you know, that, that little part where he goes to Miss Swain and says, you'd best believe in ghost stories, Miss Swain. You're in one. <laughs> May I repeat? You'd best believe in redemption stories. You're in one. That's important. This is really, really important and not merely because this allows you to then pretend that the suffering doesn't exist and to tell other people that suffering doesn't exist or that doubts don't exist. It's important because of point two, because of the meaning, because of God's protection, you are free to mourn in safety and bring your concerns to him. One of the interesting things you'll notice about Joel chapter one, if you look at it pretty closely, and I've been trying to find if I'm wrong on this one. And I mean, the only thing that's been so far negative about that is uh, that in my Bible, I use an ESV and they put a little thing at the top that says a call to repentance at the beginning of verse 13. I'm actually not sure that this text is about repentance. Sackcloth is, is a sign of mourning. It's a sign that you are very, very sad, that things are going poorly in your life. It's not necessarily you saying that I repent of anything. Now, let's be clear, the people of Joel's time have sinned against God. That's one of the reasons that God is doing evil, uh, is allowing the evil to happen to them. But Joel chapter one is not about saying, you need to repent right now. God through Joel, is not being Job's comforters. You, you remember the story of Job, right? You know, Job has everything going for him. Has, Satan talks to God and, and says, yeah, well, you know, if you took everything away, he'd, he'd, he'd curse you to his face. And God says, yeah, right. And so he says, go ahead, give it a shot, Satan. And then everything gets taken away from him. Job has done nothing wrong, nothing at all. Up until, the, up until his friends come, there is in fact the statement in the Bible, it says, in all of this, Job did not sin. And yet... His, for, his friends come by, and they tell him all sorts of theologically correct things. This is one of the problems that you have if you quote the book of Job. You can end up quoting things that sound really good theologically, but they're in the mouth of one of Job's friends that he's using that to shut them up, and to, to shut up Job, and to not have to deal with the fact that maybe, maybe, just maybe, Job, God has a different plan for Job than just the simplistic plan that we have in mind based on our theological constructs. Yeah. Joel chapter 1. What God is saying through Joel is not only that you are free to mourn because God knows your suffering. God knows your situation. Mourn. It's actually a command in Joel. He says it to four different groups over the time here. Like He goes through them. He goes through the Priests and the, he starts with the drunkards, strangely enough. He goes with drunkards and tells them to mourn. He tells the farmers to weep and wail and mourn. He tells the priests to weep and wail and mourn. He commands them to go ahead and express how they really feel. The situation that they're really in. And those of us who seek to be like God... Those of us who, um, we've talked a lot this week at uh, the offices about the meaning of the church, that we are to uh, go into the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to do all that I've commanded you. Well, all that God has commanded to us includes weeping with those who weep. It includes walking in suffering with people who suffer. It includes bearing the cross that Christ has given us. And in the midst of that, not to lie. I'm struck, and this is one of the things that causes me problems when I face Jesus myself in my own life. While people can call me Dr. Spock or call me Sheldon Cooper. Jesus was never like that. If there was any person who knew what God was going to do, that God was in absolute control of the universe, that specifically things were going to work out well, it was Jesus. When Jesus stood before the tomb of Lazarus and wept, he knew for a fact that, Judas, that, that Lazarus would come forward. He knew for a fact. When Jesus was at Gethsemane and he said to the Lord, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Let not your will, not my will, but yours be done. He didn't mean that to say, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not really sure if you will rescue me from the grave, if I will be raised on the third day. He knew that for a fact, but he knew what suffering was. And he knew that sometimes you have to walk through it to get to the other side. And this is important because we as a culture are very, very superficial. Uh, I, I apologize, maybe you guys are not the most superficial. I'll just say it from my perspective. The culture seems to agree with me when I'm being very superficial. We imagine that suffering is just a kind of a surfacey level thing that, you know, you can deal with with a few basic platitudes, and that's fine. We'll talk about how the universe uh, will, will follow if I just, you know, confess goodness over it. We imagine that platitudes save things that, you know, oh, well, what's true for you is true for you, and you can just live your truth, and that'll be great. <coughs> that you can follow through with your dreams, and your dreams will, be, will come to fruition because... You know, all things work good for you because you watch Disney films. By the way, that's actually a message in Disney films. And because of this, we, like to, we get uncomfortable with dealing with pain and suffering and real problems, men especially. I apologize, men, I'm throwing us all under the bus here. Uh, there's this famous video on YouTube called It's Not About the Nail don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh, it's a hu- uh, I think it's a husband and wife sitting on a couch, and one of them, the wife has a nail in her head, right here. And she just talks to him and says, I got this splitting pain in my forehead. And he keeps trying to say, point out the nail in her head, that if you know, she just took the nail out of her head, it wouldn't be painful anymore. And she's mad at him because he's not... Listening to her. He's not dealing with the pain and suffering. She's right, you know. Not maybe in the way that she imagines that the nail isn't going to do anything, but she is right in the fact that she is feeling pain and it's important that we as people be able to deal with people su- dealing with pain. When Jesus dealt with the pain and suffering of the people around him, Again, he knew what was going to work through. He knew what was going to happen, but he still wept over Jerusalem. He still wept over his dead friends. He still dealt with suffering as it really was, and he really suffered. And even if that lady took that nail out of her head, she's got a bit of time to let that heal over. That's probably going to be pretty painful to get that nail out again. Suffering is real. It's a real thing, and we need to be the kinds of people that deal with it, but that's going to require that we seek to be be developed by character, not by the surface level ability to seem good, which is really important for those of us in church. And I'll apologize, I am working through my uh, jealousy at not being the best dressed person in the church right now. Um, But, it's not about the way you look on the surface. This culture really does believe that the surface look is important. What's important for us as men and women of God, as people who are developing into stars that will shine brightly in the, in the heavenly glories, we need to be good people, not just look like good people. We need to be the kinds of people that see suffering around us and don't run from it, but run to those who are suffering and help them. Not because we want to shut off the suffering and make the suffering stop because it gives us too many questions, but because we love the people who are suffering. We need to be the kinds of people who stop and listen when people tell you what what they're feeling which I can't believe that's coming out of my lips, but we need to be the kinds of people who care deeply for one another. We need to be the kinds of people who are less focused on our own sufferings per se of dealing with uh, the discomforts that come in the world and desire to work with the discomforts of others. And so there are three applications I have. They're all about love. We need to be the kinds of people who love truth more than we love comfort. So we need to be the kinds of people who don't shut down suffering with platitudes, even the correct ones. We don't want to be the people that pretend that suffering isn't real. We're not Buddhists. We don't pretend that the real world doesn't exist. We we know that the real world exists. We know that the real world is broken and we know that people deal with real suffering. I mean, we're upper middle class, so we've got money to protect ourselves a little bit. But the real world out there has real suffering. There's probably people within within a short distance of us right now, that are dealing with some very real suffering in their lives. In fact, some of us in here probably are. We need to be the kinds of people who care deeply about that and who are going to follow through with that, who don't pretend that mourning isn't there, that it isn't real, but instead go with God in Joel, say to people around us to bring the worst of the suffering to God. We need to love truth more than we love comfort. We use the platitudes, the truths of scripture, not to shut people down, not to quiet the sufferings and doubts, but to point to the places where they can find answers for their real mourning and their real suffering. And to let people have the safety to mourn well among us. We need to be people who love well and love the truth. The truth of where people really are above the comfort of the surface level stuff. This is something churches are really good at here in the West. We love to pretend that everything is fine. We dress in our Sunday best or Sunday mediocre to come into the church and to have everybody believe that we're good. We'll go to Bible studies and we will pretend that when when people ask for us for the prayer requests, we'll say, oh no, I'm fine or we'll come up with something holy that people will, will believe that we are, we're really, oh, well, I'm struggling with my ability to read my Bible this week properly. We aren't gonna say, I'm, I'm really struggling with whether or not God could love me in the midst of my sin. We don't say things like that because that would be difficult and hard and painful, but we need to be people who love truth more than discomfort. We need to love our neighbors more than our comfort. And I don't just mean the neighbors in the church, but it'd be great to straighten to start here. We need to love our neighbors more than we love our comfort. So that when I ask, how are you, I should mean it. I'm not just entering into that weird uh, exchange thing we have where I say, I say, how are you? You say, fine, thank you, and you, and then we go our separate ways. In the church, when I say, how are you? We need to be meaning, I want to know how you are. When I say, how can I pray for you? I'm not asking for the nice little thing where I sit, where that means, you know, just tell me something surfacey so I don't have to deal with this very much. We need to be the kinds of people in the church who love our neighbors enough to care deeply about the real things. When people are facing doubts in their faith, we need to be able to run towards that. When we go out into the world around us and we see real suffering around us, we don't just hand somebody a 20 to deal with their pain and suffering. We talk to them, we ask them what's going on. We become known as people who love more who love our neighbors more than we love our comfort. And I say this with trepidation because, you know, I am probably the worst at this, at that point. But finally, we need to love God more than we love our comfort. Unfortunately, Jesus said to us that you can't serve two masters. He was using it for the context of money. I'll use it for the context of comfort. You You will serve one and you will hate the other. Brothers, sisters, if we love our comfort more than anything else, we will hate God. If we do everything and serve everything for the sake of our comfort, we are going to hate God. And that is a massively bad idea because this world is made in his image. He made us in his image. If we are going to live against his viewpoint, we're going to always be at war with who we are. If we want to live in the world as it should be, we have to love God more than we love our own comfort. There's no other way to say it. We need to be the kinds of people who love God more than we love being able to hold our our suffering over others more than we love holding our truth over others, we need to love God. We need to trust Him. We need to seek after Him. And I'm going to say something really, really strange here because people get there's a bit of a debate going about this kind of a point of view. I will say it is sinful to doubt God. It is. It's sinful to doubt God's existence. It's sinful to doubt his goodness. It's sinful to get angry at God. But secret, he already knows how you feel. Don't hide it from him. When you feel angry at God, do you know what you should do? Pray to him. Express your real feelings to God. Even if, and, and yeah, I'm gonna go out and say, yeah, that's sinful. But don't hide your sin before God. When I was growing up Anglican, we would say that I would not cloak nor dissemble my sin before the throne of Almighty God. Let's not do that. Rather, bring the truth of what we feel, what we're really dealing with to God, and trust Him to deal with it, because He can deal with it far better than you can by hiding it. Love God more than you love comfort. Let's not be the people who seek after looking really good. I don't want Calvary to be known as the church that looks really holy. I want us to be the church that is really holy, whether the world sees it or not. I want to be known as people who love well, they may hate the things we say, they may hate the fact that we open Bibles and read from it the truth of what, what's really there, but they need to be the kinds of people who know without a shadow of a doubt we love God and we love them. Not in the sense of just affirming everything, but in the sense of really loving people. Even if people don't get to love us, maybe they'll, they'll respect God and that'll be, that'll be enough. In the Shawshank Redemption, the the main character, Andy Dufresne, who, by the way, if you want to do a a movie night with me, I'll explain to how the the Shawshank Redemption is actually the gospel according to Stephen King. But anyway, Andy Dufresne kind of is the weird Christ character in in the Shawshank Redemption. Not a very good Christ, but it's an attempt. The secular world keeps telling stories about about the truth, so let's go with that. But he says, near the end, Talking to his friend Red, hope is a good thing, perhaps the greatest thing, and no good thing ever really dies. Yet hope is more than wishful thinking, brothers and sisters. Hope is seeing the world as it is. Do you know what hope really is? It's trusting that God has everything in his control, and therefore we are free to be who God has really led us to be at this moment. Hope is seeing the world as it is and trusting God for better, not ourselves. Paul puts it best in Romans 5, verses two to five. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. By a side note, that doesn't mean that you pretend that the suffering isn't there. You don't get endurance by having suffering and pretending it's not there. You get endurance by enduring, by actually walking through it. Because endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Your hope does not disappoint brothers and sisters if it's in God Hope is the greatest thing and it doesn't die. We endure suffering, we walk through it, we endure our suffering, we endure our neighbor's suffering, we deal with our friend's suffering, whether that's suffering physically, suffering mentally or anything else, we deal with it and we walk through it because we are safe to bring our cares to him, not hiding them before one another, not pretending we are better than we are and not certainly not hiding them before God as John says in 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 and 2 thanks by the way for Dave for preaching through this book my little children i am writing these things to you so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only but for the sins of the whole world so church will we take Joel's lesson Will we trust in God? And not just say we trust in God, but trust in God to do all things, to hold all things, to deal with the worst crap we actually have in our lives. Are we going to point one another to Jesus Christ? not because we think Jesus Christ is going to shut everybody's suffering up and make it go away and pretend that it's not there, but because he will put it in the proper context and deal with it ultimately for our good, because all things work together for the good of those who love, including trust, and serve the Lord and are called according to his purposes. Let us pray. Lord God, may my brothers and sisters here and on the internet have seen a much better sermon than I just preached. Oh God, it's so hard to express the truths that you have because they're so deep. Let us be the kinds of people who desire to be friends of yours, not in words only, but in word and deed. Oh God, may we trust you. May we follow you. May we trust you in our suffering and our doubts and in everything that we face. In Jesus' name, amen.